This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week again for the Jewish News Hour. We'll start out looking at the Times of Israel, and then we'll bounce around to some of the other Jewish media outlets. Israeli scientists find new way to predict cancer's deadly spread through the body, by Nathan Jaffe. Israeli scientists have accidentally discovered a new way to predict the likelihood of cancer patients developing potentially life-threatening secondary tumors. One of the biggest worries of cancer patients is that after the removal of their primary tumor, secondary tumors will develop. Such secondary growths, known as metastasis, are responsible for 90% of cancer-related deaths, but it normally takes time after surgery until a pathology report gives patients an idea of their risk level. Professor Daphne Weiss told the Times of Israel her biomedical engineering lab at the Technion Institute of Technology has discovered how to use a special gel to give an instant assessment of how likely a patient is to develop a secondary tumor. Our method is more rapid, accurate, and quantitative than pathology results, she said. Wise said her method will prove life-saving as accurate information is key to ensuring that patients are monitored correctly for their risk level so that new secondary tumors are picked up early or prevented before they have a chance to develop. She claimed her innovation cuts down the chances of patients being told they are safe from secondary tumors when they aren't compared to pathology reports. Wise said that like all the best science, the method was discovered unintentionally when her lab prepared a polymeric gel and placed cancer cells on it for general observation. We made it to study interactions of aggressive cells with their environment and ran into an unexpected phenomenon. A student researcher noticed the cells physically pushing into the gel, which she found to be a distraction from what she was trying to observe. The student who saw this didn't know what she was looking at and said some of the cells are doing something weird and pushing. She asked, is this interesting? Weiss realized that the force of the cells were exerting on, the force that the cells were exerting on the gel was the very same force the cells would use to make their way through the body and spread cancer to new areas. She went on to develop ways of measuring the extent of the pushing and build a model that predicts how able the cells may prove to cause secondary tumors. The method was tested on samples from pancreatic cancer patients being treated at the Rambam Healthcare campus in Haifa. Wise cross-referenced her findings with pathology reports for patients and their medical follow-ups. We assess how they behave on the gel through a correlation between mechanics and biology of the cell and make predictions based on this, she said. Our measure shows how many of the cells are pushing and how deep they reach, and the higher the values, the more aggressive the cells are assumed to be. Cells that make little headway on the gel normally pose less risk for secondary tumors, while those that put a shard or higher risk wise observed. We can take a sample from anywhere in the primary tumor and can give the likelihood of metastasis, she said. The next stage of our research is that we may be able to find out more and predict where in the body a secondary tumor is likely to develop. This would be very important because if you can say where metastasis could happen with a high degree of certainty, it could even justify invasive measures to check if there is a secondary tumor wise added. This could save lots of time, and time is crucial with cancers, especially the aggressive ones. 
A paper based on the research has been peer-reviewed and published in Annals of Biomedical Engineering. WISE expects the method to work on tumors from all types of cancer and has already conducted studies which are being peer-reviewed on three other cancer types. She said she hopes to put the gel and the methodology forward for clinical testing with a view to marketing it. And next from the Times of Israel, they live on West Bank's only all-girl hilltop but don't call them feminists. By Jacob Magid. Maoz Esther, West Bank. The dog was playing in the yard. A teenage girl inside was boiling a pot of water to make rice on the kitchen stove. Another was studying for her high school matriculation exam at the dining room table. One could have walked into the small home in the central West Bank outpost of, outpost of Maoz Esther and simply assumed the children's parents were out of work, were out at work. But that was not the case as the girl's parents live elsewhere. While the scene itself may have seemed prosaic, to the inhabitants of the shed-sized, isolated hilltop home, unfolding was nothing short of the most critical Zionist project of our time. Maoz Esther is not the only outpost beyond the Green Line occupied exclusively by religious ultranationalist teenagers, but it is the only one to feature an all-female home. Residents, six girls between the ages of 14 and 17, have effectively thrown a, thrown a wrench into the image of the yarmulke-wearing boys with long, matted sidelocks that often comes to mind upon mention of the term hilltop youth. The long-skirted female denizens of the outpost don't deny that their living situation is unique, but to them, gender is not the issue at hand. Rather, the obligation of all Israelis, men and women, to expand and entrench Jewish presence throughout the entirety of the biblical land of Israel. We're not here to encourage female activism, but if, until now, women thought that they didn't have a role in building the land, they were sorely mistaken, said Shalhevet Goldstein. The Times of Israel sat down with the 16-year-old and several of her housemates in the cramped dining room of their Maoz Esther home earlier this month. During the conversation, the girls opened up about life in the outpost, how they came to drop everything and move there, and what their parents think of their decision. The young women were adamant that they not be presented as a bunch of crazies and described themselves as a modern-day extension of the early Zionists, who on occasion operated outside the law in order to establish the state of Israel. Maoz Esther was founded in 2006 in memory of Esther Galia, a 48-year-old Israeli mother of seven who was killed in a drive-by shooting attack at the West Bank's Rimonim Junction four years earlier. Over its short history, the outpost has consisted only of a handful of makeshift, makeshift homes and structures scattered across adjacent hilltops less than a half mile north of the Kohav Hashachar settlement. Buildings in Maoz Esther have been demolished by security forces well over two dozen times due to the outpost's establishment on private farming land belonging to the nearby Palestinian village of Kafr Malik, according to Defense Ministry land registration documents. While the international community considers all settlement activity illegal, Israel differentiates between legal settlement homes built and permitted by the Defense Ministry on land owned by the state and illegal outposts built without necessary permits, sometimes on private Palestinian land such as Maoz Esther. The difficult living conditions have prevented young inhabitants from staying on a more than intermittent basis. But as Goldstein tells it, a group of boys decided to test that trend two years ago 
and began living on the outpost all year round. This led her and two other girls to build their own home and do the same. At first I was hesitant about leaving the old Pana, religious all-girls high school, but eventually I realized what was demanded of me and that if I did not answer the call there would be no girls in the outpost, she said. I saw a disturbing reality in which the state of Israel refuses to decide whether this land in the West Bank truly belongs to us, and I needed to do my part to ensure that it will not be given to anyone else, said Goldstein. This is exactly what we're taught at home and in school. She recalled how her parents in Kohav HaShachar had initially been hesitant about the idea of her leaving home at such a young age. However, they were reassured when the settlement's rabbi, Ohad Krakover, endorsed the idea. The number of girls in the house has doubled over the past two years, thanks in no small part to two of them recruiting their younger sisters. During breaks in the school year, they said their home in Maoz Esther hosts up to 15 teenagers, a mind-boggling number given how small the home is. The girls demonstrated this to, uh, to this reporter, that by folding up the dining room table and covering the wooden floor with mattresses, they could fit that number cozily. If there's not enough room, someone can sleep under the stars, one of them said, pointing to the stack of brown, beat-up mattresses just outside the home. Although they live on their own, the girls were quick to point out that they're not as isolated as it may seem. They described Maoz Esther as a neighborhood of Kohab HaShachar, where they buy groceries every couple of days and where a number of them work part-time jobs at the daycare and local shops. We're constantly consulting with rabbis, teachers, and adults from the area, said Yerushalayim Golzan, who joined her friends for the interview. The 19-year-old had lived in the girls' home for a year before getting married two months ago and building a new house with her husband on an adjacent hilltop. Unlike Goldstein, though, she waited until after finishing high school to move to Maoz Esther. My parents didn't want me to drop out. They thought that if I came here, I'd end up in Katz Square, Gozlan said, referring to a downtown Jerusalem spot known for attracting teenage consumers of drugs and alcohol. But after I arrived, they saw how serious it is out here and how we've learned to take responsibility for ourselves and for each other, she continued. I've discovered truth here, and it is our responsibility to wake up the Jewish people to this truth. Gozlan's younger sister, Tahia, followed in her footsteps and now lives in the girl's house as well. We're not alone here, Thea said, while washing dishes at the kitchenette in the corner of the house. She pointed out how after a demolition action last month at the outpost, residents of Kohav HaShachar and surrounding settlements raised over 15,000 shekels, approximately 4,400 American dollars, allowing the Maoz Esther inhabitants to rebuild their homes within days. After demolition, they came with food and offered to let us stay by them. They're also frequently donating items and funds throughout the year, said Goldstein. The girls have also recently been able to enjoy running water thanks to pipes extended from one of the homes on the edge of Kohav HaShachar. This has meant the ability to build the kitchen sink, where Tahia was working on dinner, in addition to a shower and toilet that shakes the entire house with every flush. While the home isn't connected to electricity, the girls get by with a generator that allows them to charge their phones and a number of solar-powered ceiling lights. However, much of their time is spent outside the house. The girls boasted of a rigorous schedule that starts every day at 5.30 a.m., 
with each of them waking up to pray outside on their own. From 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., they say the home turns into a fully functioning seminary where they learn religious texts, sometimes in pairs and sometimes in lessons delivered by rabbis and teachers from the surrounding settlements. In the afternoon, the girls split off, with some of them working in nearby Kochav HaShachar and others tending to the hilltop's vineyard or other agricultural products projects aimed at stretching Ma'o's Esther's imaginary borders as far as possible. We're interested in the positive side of settlement, not in police and price tags, said Goldstein, referring to the hate attacks targeting Palestinians and their property that are sometimes carried out by young ultra-national activists from outposts like Ma'o's Esther. The girls said that reactions from friends and relatives to their lifestyle range from wow, you're absolutely crazy, to wow, good for you. Everyone appreciates what we're doing at some level, but there, also, there are also those who might not entirely agree with the path we're taking, said Gozlan, citing concerns over outposts being built without permits on land not registered to the state. Asked about the status of the land on which Mao's Esther sits, Goldstein said she was not sure, but added that in principle she has never tried to find out because it all belongs to us anyways. While the girls lamented the government's inability to enact its sovereignty over the entirety of the West Bank, they said that in the meantime Ma'o's Esther was doing the state's dirty work. The Bedouin used to graze their flock here, but ever since we've arrived they've understood that this land is ours and have stopped coming here, said Goldstein. Pointing to the Bedouin hamlet just below Ma'o's Esther, Goldstein said, I have no problem with them being there as long as they accept that this land belongs to Jews. Kidder al-Amirin, a Bedouin shepherd who lives in that 22-family encampment called Ein Samia, told the Times of Israel that while many settlers in the area had made his life difficult, the girls in Ma'o's Esther were not among them. They don't come here and cause us problems, and we don't go there, he said, contrasting the Ma'o's Esther residents with other settlers around Ein Samia, who al-Amirin said block him from grazing his sheep on 99% of the land he once had access to. But while the Ma'o's Esther residents said they have yet to experience a confrontation with the surrounding Palestinian populations, one ex-senior Shin Bet official dismissed the notion that the girls were not vulnerable. Just because an incident of violence hasn't happened until now doesn't mean it won't happen eventually, said Avi Ariely, who headed the security agency's so-called Jewish division from 2009 to 2013. In that capacity, he worked regularly with leaders in the national religious community to reintegrate Hilltop youth back into government-run educational programs. Ariely expressed his dismay that there are rabbis in Israel who say it's okay for a group of girls to live on their own on a hilltop. With boys, I worry about what will happen to the other side, he said, citing a 2015 terror attack in which a far-right young activist from an outpost near Shiloh hurled a firebomb into a home in the Palestinian village of Duma, killing a couple and their 18-month baby who were sleeping inside. He admitted to being less concerned about such violence from female hilltop youth, but went on to describe what he believed could be a plausible scenario in which one of their surrounding Palestinian neighbors might try and threaten them, leading the girls to decide that they must act in order to show deterrence. They're blinded by ideology, Ariely said. 
Speaking on the condition of anonymity, a security official told the Times of Israel that while all children are required to remain in government-mandated educational programs through the age of 18, law enforcement is unable to act against violators after the age of 16. We also prefer to address this question through the lens of education. Rather than sending an officer to the outpost, we send a psychiatrist or a teacher to prepare them for their matriculation exam, he said. The girls in Maoz Esther took great offense at being classified at risk youth by the current and former security officials. All of us here are completing our matriculation exams. How does that make us at risk? We're self-disciplined and wake up every morning at 5.30 a.m. How is that at risk? asked Goldstein. It's pathetic to tell those who are not wasting their time with parties and video games that they're the ones who are at risk, she continued. I'm not working for myself. I'm working as a soldier for the Jewish people and the land. That's the least at-risk thing there is. Asked why they thought more girls haven't joined them in their effort, the Maozester residents lamented that many of their friends have used the fact that they are girls as an excuse. They say, because I'm a girl, my parents might think doing something like this is inappropriate, Gozlan said, but what's inappropriate? We're not going out and fighting with bows and arrows. We're just living here. Goldstein pointed out that those young women not interested in taking part in the building aspects of settlement can contribute in many other ways. I didn't like playing house as a kid. I liked playing in the mud and being active, so that has translated to me being more involved in building things here. But other people who are different, and we need everyone, including those who want to cook and clean, she said. We're not feminists, and we're not trying to make a statement that specifically girls should be doing this. It is simply the job of the entire nation, Gozlan said. There's definitely a difference between men and women, but how can you build settlements without us, she asked. Aaron Boxerman contributed to this report. And next from the Times of Israel, in latest anti-government protest, hundreds amass outside Netanyahu residences by Times of Israel staff. Hundreds of anti-government protesters gathered on Friday outside Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's official residence in Jerusalem and outside his private residence in the coastal city of Caesarea. The demonstrations were the latest in a series of near-daily protests against the premier, calling for his ouster over corruption charges amid widespread frustration over the government's handling of the coronavirus outbreak and ensuing economic crisis. Uniformed police and plainclothes officers were on the scene and closely monitoring weekend demonstrations after several recent rallies devolved into violence. Friday's protests were peaceful and even included a modern dance troupe performing in the street. The anti-government demonstrators were planning on holding a Shabbat service at the Jerusalem rally on Friday evening, as they have for the past several weeks, the Walla news site reported. About 100 people attended the Caesarea protest. The ongoing protest movement was also set to expand abroad on Friday with a rally planned at the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Organizers said the event was being held in support of our Israeli brothers and sisters who protest on 250 bridges in Israel and in the city squares with the intention of saving the Israeli democracy. A demonstration was expected to take place at the Israeli embassy in London on Sunday, and a small rally was held last week at the embassy in Berlin, Walla reported. 
protesters have for weeks been holding regular rallies outside the Prime Minister's residence on Balfour Street in Jerusalem, as well as in Tel Aviv and other areas, calling on the Premier to resign due to his indictment on corruption charges. They have been joined in recent weeks by people protesting the government's economic policies during the coronavirus pandemic, with crowds in the thousands and rising. Recent protests have seen an alarming spike in violence, with attacks by right-wing counter-protesters and scuffles between anti-government demonstrators and police. On Thursday night, police detained some 16 suspected far-right activists after a rally by an extremist Jerusalem gang saw journalists and others attacked, though police managed to prevent the group from approaching and possibly assaulting anti-government protesters. The rally by Beitar Jerusalem soccer fan club La Famia at Jerusalem's first station entertainment complex was planned as a counter-demonstration to a nearby anti-government protest against Netanyahu. It came amid an uptick of attacks on anti-Netanyahu protesters by suspected far-right assailants, including a bloody assault in Tel Aviv on Tuesday. Far-right counter-protesters on Thursday chanted death to leftists, hurled rocks, and assaulted journalists breaking a camera. On Tuesday, a rally outside Public Security Minister Amir Ohana's home in Tel Aviv turned violent when suspected far-right assailants were seen hitting demonstrators with glass bottles, clubs, and chairs, and spraying them with mace. Organizers of the protest said five people were hospitalized, including two with stab wounds to their backs. Later reports said ten people were hospitalized. Five suspects were released to house arrest on Thursday with a judge uh, said to accept the defense's argument that the altercation had been a brawl between two sides who had provoked each other and not an outright attack against protesters. The Tuesday violence drew widespread condemnation, including from opposition figures who blamed Netanyahu for inciting it. Netanyahu and some of his supporters have spoken out against the anti-government protesters as anarchists. On Saturday night, last Saturday night, police arrested far-right activists, reportedly members of the group who allegedly attacked protesters. Protesters also reported being attacked by far-right hooligans at smaller demonstrations in the south of the country and near Tel Aviv. Netanyahu is on trial for a series of cases in which he allegedly received lavish gifts from billionaire friends and traded regulatory favors with media moguls for more favorable coverage of himself and his family. The Prime Minister has denied any wrongdoing, accusing the media and law enforcement of a witch hunt to oust him from office and has refused to leave office. And next from the Times of Israel, with shofars and fasting, Boston Jews use Tisha B'Av to commemorate black grief by Matt Lebovic, Boston. At a park close to Boston University, members of Jewish communal groups gathered Thursday evening to hold a Tisha B'Av vigil for the Black Lives Matter movement. More than 150 participants attended the 90-minute event in masks and maintaining social distance. The vigil was organized by Kavod, a community of young Jews committed to spiritual practice and justice. The ninth of Av, or Tisha B'Av, is amongst the most solemn days on the Jewish calendar, set aside to mourn tragedies throughout Jewish history, from the biblical sin of the spies to the destruction of both temples to more modern catastrophes. 
Talmudic tradition holds that the second temple was destroyed by baseless hatred among Jews, and many use the day to try and heal societal rifts such as those that sparked the Black Lives Matter movement and the wave of racial justice protests sweeping the United States. Rabbi Teferet Berenbaum of Temple Beth Zion opened the gathering by acknowledging that participants were standing or sitting on beautiful land stolen from the Wampanoag people. Berenbaum, a Brookline native, invited participants to cry out in collective grief, mourning, and outrage against the violence of anti-black racism in our world and in our communities. The day of fasting, said Berenbaum, is about destruction, death, colonization, and violence. Close by, several participants held the large Jews for Black Lives banner. In the context of the dual pandemics of COVID and racism, said the rabbi, shofar blasts will awaken us from grief and be a voice to call us back to action. The vigil included remarks by black Jewish leaders and readings from the Book of Lamentations, the text read on Tisha B'Av. Several poems and musical selections about grief and destruction were performed. The vigil took place next to Hall's Pond Sanctuary, one of two natural ponds remaining in Brookline. The Boston suburb of 60,000 is home to several synagogues and top hospitals. This is a day for honoring our hurting hearts, said Rabbi Leora Abelson of Nahar Shalom Community Synagogue in Boston. There is strength in honoring our grief, said Abelson, adding that anti-racism demonstrations have given public voice to the grief of black people in the country and around the world. According to Abelson, black Americans have been showing us how important it is to honor our grief. For some Jews, the current moment involves looking within themselves to examine long-held beliefs, said Abelson. As a Jew, I add that naming white supremacy enough, meaning... Uh, means naming the particular forms of racism that show up in our Jewish communities, said Abelson. The vigil also included remarks from Mariama White-Hammond, the founding pastor of New Roots African Methodist Episcopal Church in Dorchester. A pastor of color who had never commemorated Tisha B'Av, White-Hammond nevertheless drew on themes from Jewish history for her sermon. The U.S., she said, is in a wilderness moment, similar to the ancient Israelites being punished for listening to the Twelve Spies. White Hammond told attendees that Biblical Spies incident was the first disaster commemorated on Tisha B'Av. It took place because the children of Israel did not believe the Lord would, make, would keep promises made to Moses. To cleanse themselves of old thinking, the Israelites wandered for 40 years until the generation of the spies died out. I do think we are in a wilderness moment, said White Hammond. I don't think it's any accident that this uprising occurred at the same time as this pandemic. This is a racial opportunity to let old ways of being die, said the pastor. It's about the power to let Pharaoh go, said White Hammond. Kavod activist and urban, pl urban planner Courtney Sharp spoke about the need for Jews to support the Black Lives Movement. Even though some of the organization's original founders expressed hostility toward Israel, alienating Jewish supporters. As someone squarely in the Jewish and black worlds, I am troubled by the false dichotomy currently in the public discourse, said Sharp. If, as a community, we want to support the lives of Jews of color, we can't only do it to save face for white Jews. It needs to be an embedded and genuine practice that uplifts the entire community 
not patronizing, and not fake. And now we'll go over to the JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, for updates. And first is an interview. We spoke with Jewish Currents about Seth Rogen, Young Jews, and that Peter Beinart essay. And this is an interview by Laura E. Adkins, Woodmere, New York, JTA. When the magazine Jewish Currents published an essay by Peter Beinart titled Yavna, A Jewish Case for Equality in Israel-Palestine, earlier in July, it sent shockwaves through the corner of the Jewish world in which the future of Israel is hotly debated. In the essay, Beinart explained why he's given up hope in a two-state solution and instead will advocate now for a binational Israel-Palestine with equal rights for all. In this wide-ranging conversation, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency spoke with Ariel Angle, Jewish Currents editor, about the magazine, its mission, the Israeli-Palestine conflict, and the identity crisis facing today's Jews. Jewish Currents started in 1946, committed to, as you say on your site, the rich tradition of thought, activism, and culture of the Jewish left. What does that mean in 2020? What is the vision you're building in terms of what that looks like in practice? This magazine has been in continuous print since 1946, but there have been real breakages in this lineage. The magazine was originally an organ of the Communist Party, which of course was an extremely common thing in the Jewish community, particularly in New York, until it became clear what was really going on in the Soviet Union. And then the people around Jewish currents had to figure out, well, where are we going to go from here? The boomer generation's relative economic plenty coincided with a time where the Jewish community was moving into whiteness and the middle class. Those processes took them away from a radical tradition, and on top of that, the Jewish communal structure was really tra- changing its orientation. At the time where this magazine was founded, even the reform movement was not yet Zionist. The radical or leftist lineage and their values became subservient to other goals that the community had, which were about economic uplift and Zionism. By the time our parents entered political consciousness, most American Jews were middle-class people in professionalized jobs. Now most of us are downwardly mobile. We have an Israel that is exhibiting increasing levels of authoritarianism, and the calculus that our parents made is no longer working. We are not the direct descendants of Jewish currents' original original lineage in most cases, and yet we are sort of reaching back into that lineage and asking, for example, why was it buried? The next question, when I think of the Jewish media story in New York in particular, it's so inextricably linked with the labor movement and Lower East Side Ashkenazi immigrants, and I think you explained very well that kind of swing to our parents' generation of economic prosperity and Jews really fully assimilating to a certain extent in the United States. We grew up in the system that is being critiqued as opposed to earlier generations who are really new arrivals and saw the problems with fresh eyes. It's not like it happened by accident. There were wealthy Jews who did not like the politics of the rabble-rousing radical Jews, and they created the central bodies of Jewish leadership that exist today, like the ADL and AJC. These organizations are not democratic, not based in the values of those downtown Jews, and that was done on purpose. Big donors to institutions like JTS, for example, changed the nature of religious education, which filtered down to the synagogues, 
They used to be more participatory, more of a community space, and now they become more quiet, more controlled. These things were done on purpose to try to create a vision of a Jewish upper-class society, white upper-class society, and it worked. I'm wondering how the messages and the values of the Jewish left in the early to mid-1900s translate to an overwhelmingly very well-educated, very high socioeconomic class of readers. Well, I think that this gets at the generational question. On a certain level, whether you were raised with money or not, you're probably not earning more than your parents or able to buy a home with your nonprofit job. Your job is probably precarious. We may have been raised in certain kind of families, which, let's just also be clear, a lot of people were not. But we are still not feeling secure, and the resurgence of white nationalism since President Trump's election compounded these fears. So suddenly, the machinations of state power and the way that state power has come to bear on Jewish history, and the way that it's coming to bear on other groups of people in the United States, the echoes become hard to ignore. I think you see, both in the United States and in Israel and the Palestinian territories, this kind of reawakening of more radical ideas. Younger Israelis are more right-wing politically than their parents. Younger Palestinians don't necessarily feel the same way as their parents about Israeli nationalism and Palestinian nationalism. There seems to be a lot of interesting things going on with just the radicalization of young, politically-minded people. I think everyone can feel that we are closer to some kind of break. It does feel a bit like the older generation is not paying attention to those structural limits. Even though Israeli society is moving more to the right, they're also responding to that same reality. Their position is basically saying we need to get rid of these people, we need to move them out, or we need to expel them, or we need to make sure that they're contained. The hard line is abhorrent, but it's an, internally in, uh, it's an internally consistent position because it makes a decisive choice about a situation whose reality can no longer be denied or delayed. I think that's a good segue into talking about Peter Beinart's essay for Jewish Currents in which he revealed he has lost hope in a two-state solution and is instead now advocating for a binational state with equal rights. What have the reactions been like? Is it what you expected? It is what we expected. I mean, I was extremely aware of the critique we were going to get from the left about Peter's positioning and about some of the terms of the argument. We knew that was coming. As the editor, I tried to correct for that as much as I could. At the same time, I think Peter was very aware of being edited from his left and speaking in some ways to his right. The response from the mainstream Jewish community was very expected, and in fact, I think it actually went better than I thought in that he mostly wasn't excommunicated or anything like that. I expected that people would attack him. I certainly didn't expect that the organizations that have put their hopes in the two-state solution and have refused to engage with reality on the ground would just suddenly say, yeah, Peter, you're right. But I also saw the immediate impact on people who have been struggling with this and looking for a way to move forward, and we did hear from a lot of people along those lines. From the outside, Jewish Currents has a reputation, even though it's been around forever, of being young, scrappy, fresh, and really pushing the lines on things. And Peter has been around for a long time as an American intellectual voice of the Jewish pro-Zionist left. 
walk me through the vision and expectations of bringing someone like Peter into Jewish currents. I think it was a very interesting decision for him to come to work with us, and it wasn't something that I expected when we took over Jewish Currents. I do think that for Peter, there's a question of what his legacy will be, the direction that he's going, and who he is in conversation with. I think that for most of his career, he's been in conversation with his parents' generation on some level. Peter is very adept at figuring out where the mainstream conversation is going, and also at figuring out who in the Jewish community he might be able to have the most interesting conversations with. I can't speak for Peter, but I think there may have been a sense for him that the conversation he had been having was not as interesting anymore, and that in order to move into the future and actually move to where the conversation is going, he might have to start talking more to the next generation. I think we see that in a lot of the responses to his piece by community leaders and thinkers, a lot of people actually didn't engage with the content of the piece and used it as an opportunity to just reiterate the same old talking points. To me, it seems like he made a decision about where the mo uh, what the more honest conversation to be having right now is and the ways that conversation will have to move in order to achieve something that resembles a just solution. Peter notes that the centers of Jewish power are pro-Israel and that Israel has become the core tenet of American Jewish identity. But I think there might be a subtle distinction between identifying as pro-Israel, which 97% of American Jews do, and how people are actually operating day to day. I don't actually know if Israel is such a focal point of American Jewish identity. We have some good polling, but we don't have enough polling to actually know. What we do know is that Israel is the last legislative priority among American Jews. Beating Trump is the number one priority, but then you have health care, immigration, all the things that progressive Americans care about because most American Jews are progressive. Israel may be at the heart of mainstream Jewish identity, but it is not the primary concern for American Jews. Also, we don't know what they mean when they say pro-Israel. If you start to probe on what American Jews think should happen to Israel, if they had to choose between it being a democracy and the Jewish state, for instance, you get a much higher percentage of people saying it should be a democracy. Turns out American Jews care about democracy quite a bit. Already we know that Israel is not a democracy, that millions of Palestinians cannot vote for the government which controls their lives, and annexation gives us an opportunity to say definitively this will be a non-democracy, this will be an apartheid-like situation. So I do think that the more this penetrates the American Jewish consciousness, the more you're going to see people really questioning what it means to be pro-Israel. I listened to the Mark Maron interview with Seth Rogen this morning. It was a fascinating conversation, but something that really stood out to me is this juxtaposition. Seth Rogen grew up going to liberal Jewish summer camp. He didn't live in a particularly observant family. He brings up in the podcast that he doesn't believe in religion or religious motivations for being in Israel having any weight. But also, he talks about sitting shiva and mourning rituals and how, as he gets older, those things begin to, make a more, to take a more central role in his life, while simultaneously having very passionate feelings that Israel doesn't speak for his Judaism. It's not where he's engaging. I didn't get the sense from listening that he necessarily has thought much about two states versus one state versus anything. I think there's a lot to unpack there because I would speculate, and I'm curious to hear your perspective, 
that among non-Orthodox Jews under 40, that combination of general apathy about Israel put together with kind of questioning what role formalized Judaism has to play in their modern existence is something that's far more interesting for them to engage with than the politics of the Middle East. I think a lot of us are going through some measure of this kind of thing, and I do think that the real tragedy in this is that the mainstream Jewish community and the philanthropic community has totally abdicated its ability to reach someone like Seth Rogen, who's clearly talking about wanting to know more, who's clearly talking about wanting a certain kind of Jewish community. They've just left people like him in the lurch. A lot of young people don't want to put an ethno-nationalist project at the heart of their identity, which is partially because they are what this community purportedly wanted them to be, people who believe in fairness and equality and multicultural society. So I think it really does speak to the, uh, that major failure of the American Jewish establishment that Peter wrote about 10 years ago. For many people who are a bit younger than me, the process of becoming disillusioned about the community's support for the occupation is a very central experience. And I think that by essentially casting them out and not actually providing opportunities for them to re-engage in Jewish community from a place of wanting to learn or wanting to engage on their own terms makes it so that now Israel is the primary lens by which we engage in Jewishness. I wonder if you see any organizations or decentralized ways of operating being successful. Coming from the perspective of someone in the Orthodox community as we're talking, I'm thinking that this is kind of why Kiruv and the Kiruv movement have worked for a lot of young American Jews. It doesn't necessarily engage with Israel in questions of statehood. The Orthodox community being overwhelmingly Zionist is very, very new in the evolution of Jewish thought. But when you center Jewish identity around community and meals and engaging with texts, there is something powerful. And I wonder what the not explicitly religious version of that is, and if you've seen any manifestations of that. I think it's really hard, because in the Orthodox community, you still have the funding. I don't fully understand how Chabad's finances work, but it does seem as though there are a lot of donors, and there are people who are paying for services for them because they also teach about Jewish life and text, provide child care and schooling, etc. I think ultimately in the secular community it's about philanthropy and philanthropic models are so completely out of touch with young people and have no desire to give up power or decision making to young people. I think Jewish Currents is a great example of what can happen when you turn over the reins. What the previous editor did was just give us the magazine and it was painful for him. It was painful for the board that we had at the time because you're basically watching people do something different than you intended with the thing that you built, but that is how these things are going to survive. There are a lot of organizations that are catering, catering to the secular progressive Jewish community in big and small ways, but not so much at the institutional level. For example, if I had a child right now as a left-wing Jew, where would I send them for Jewish education? Not to mention that in many ways the American Jewish community has completely defunded its arts and cultural programs, which are essential to building meaningful secular Jewish life in favor of sending the money to Israel. As we're talking, I'm realizing most, if not all, the people that we're either explicitly mentioning or alluding to are American men of a certain generation. Even us having this conversation right now is super rare. Most Jewish publications are run by men and the board is filled with men. 
I'm constantly checking my own biases about who is allowed to speak in this conversation, and I'm curious from your perspective what we miss out on when female voices, Palestinian voices, Israelis who don't speak English, uh, well, are missing from the conversation. I mean, how much time do we have? It's almost obvious what we miss when we don't have these people in this conversation. Like it's just not representative of anything. It doesn't actually bring us to where the real conflicts are or to where the most promising just solutions are. But it's not the kinds of conversations that we miss. It's the conversations that we've literally destroyed. When I go to work with Palestinian writers, and it's actually difficult to do that because there's so much broken trust between Jewish media and Palestinian writers, but when I reach out to Palestinian writers to ask them to talk to a Jewish audience about something, what I will sometimes get is a first draft that expends precious space arguing for their own humanity or arguing that there is indeed an occupation because those are the terms that Jewish media has laid out. This means that we're never even allowing the conversation to get to the place where we're actually talking about things that we need to talk about. That is extremely intellectually destructive. I think that's such an important point. The questions we ask and the answers we elevate dictate what people come to us to say. So what are the most relevant questions when we're at an impasse here? Part of our process since publishing the piece is reaching out to Palestinian intellectual leaders. We're going to try to have those conversations in Jewish currents and make room for them to dictate the questions that they think need to be asked. We do have an editorial baseline, and that is that Palestinians must be free and that it is an urgent issue. You can't just defer it by saying it's complicated. That's why a lot of the responses to Peter's piece really rang hollow. A lot of them basically said, we know how bad it is, but we have to stay the course, and that's not acceptable to us. The interview was conducted by Laura E. Adkins, JTA's opinion editor and an adjunct professor of journalism at Yeshiva University. She was previously deputy opinion editor at The Forward, where she wrote about data, orthodoxy, kosher wine, and built interactive maps. Laura has also served as the editor of the Jewish Insider and as an assistant blogs editor at the Times of Israel. And next from JTA, Oregon's Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum says she won't stand for authoritarianism in Portland by Ben Sales. When reports emerged two weeks ago about federal agents seizing protesters from the streets of Portland and putting them in unmarked vans, Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum sued to get federal officers off the street. A judge rejected Rosenblum's request for a preliminary restraining order against the agents last week, but the lawsuit is ongoing, as is a criminal investigation Rosenblum opened into federal agents who injured a protester. On Wednesday, the Trump administration made an agreement with local officials to withdraw the federal forces, though the timing is unclear. Rosenblum, who was elected to her post in 2012, is a former board member of her Portland synagogue, Congregation Beth Israel, as well as the founder of its book club and a former member of its choir. The Jewish Telegraphic Agency spoke with Rosenblum Wednesday about her next steps and how she sees her role as the state attorney general and a Jewish elected official. JTA, what do you see as your role and your goal during this period? Rosenblum, I am the people's attorney. 
I look out for the most vulnerable in our state. I look out for those who most need the support of the legal establishment, if you will, to make sure that their rights are protected. In terms of actually taking legal actions, I don't go there unless I feel that there are harms to Oregonians. In this case, there was no question that we had to do something because it appeared that the situation was getting worse rather than improving with this influx of federal agents uninvited to our city. We started hearing these really frightening stories that appeared to be clear violations of the civil rights and liberties of Oregonians, and in particular Portlanders who were attempting to and continue to be protesting against very serious abuses. Police brutality, in support of Black Lives Matter, in support of racial justice. And it appeared that the conduct, the tactics that were being engaged in on the streets of our city, were not only really frighteningly dangerous, they could harm people, but they were infringing on the rights, the First Amendment rights, the Fourth Amendment rights, the Fifth Amendment rights of our citizens. Now that federal agents appear to be leaving Portland, what are your next steps? Let's get them out of town as quickly as possible and regroup. I hope the city, the mayor, the governor, the advocacy committee, and the protesters will sit down and will hammer out a plan so that protests can continue if that is the desired route and I believe it will be. They need to be allowed to continue under circumstances that do not infringe on civil liberties and with the personal endangerment that has occurred when the feds were here. Given your experience filing a lawsuit against the federal agents, what advice would you give other attorneys general facing the same issue? Well, first of all, I don't consider that we did not succeed. We lost a motion for temporary restraining order, but that is the first part of a potentially successful lawsuit or an unsuccessful lawsuit, so I'm not quite conceding that we lost. I will say that the judge did not agree that we had standing to pursue the matter at this level with the amount of evidence that we had, so we're looking at different options. There's numerous lawsuits that are still pending, and I'm not sure that anyone is just going to drop their lawsuit at this point because these are all issues that could come back. You know, we, do, we don't have any assurance that they're not going to return. These are all federal lawsuits, and special court rulings could serve as at least guidance, if not precedent, in other locales. We're very hopeful that their leaving Portland doesn't mean they're going somewhere else. We want them back to their agencies doing the job that they apparently were trained in. They're not trained to go anywhere to de-escalate conflict clearly. I talk to my Democratic Attorney General colleagues all the time. We meet by phone once a week as a group and we share all of what we're doing to the extent we can. We join with each other in lawsuits, we help each other out, we file amicus briefs. So if they find themselves similarly situated, we provide them full access to our lawsuit pleadings and we're also more than happy to meet with them to discuss some potential strategies. What concerned you most about what you saw happening on the streets of Portland with the federal agents? They really appeared to be schooled in escalating the aspects of the protests that were not safe. So, for example, if there was somebody who threw something at them, they would throw something back, maybe even something that was more dangerous than what had been thrown in the first instance. So what we saw was an escalation of the situation, not a de-escalation. They came in allegedly to protect their buildings, allegedly to quell the violence, and they just did the opposite. That was certainly very concerning because there's a chilling effect 
what we call a restraint upon an individual's or a group's First Amendment right to protest. Shortly after they arrived, there was one extremely serious incident that is the subject of our criminal investigation where an individual was shot in, at, in the face with some sort of projectile and has been back in the hospital now apparently and has suffered serious facial and, I think, brain injuries. There have been reports of some violence emanating from the protests. If you feel the federal response made it worse, what do you think should be done in response? It appears that a large number of the people who have come out having engaged in whatever misconduct or violent conduct they've engaged in have been largely provoked by the presence, not just the presence, but the actions of the feds. They need to leave, and once they leave, I think there will be an opportunity to resolve what is left of any violent conduct that might continue. I hope it does not. Obviously, if it does, we have to deal with it immediately. I'm not going to say that there was no violent conduct before the Fed arrives, okay? But what I'm saying is that it's not going to stop until the Feds leave, it would appear. So that's the first step toward negotiation, toward resolution. But for the most part, these protests were peaceful protests. They were not violent protests until the Feds arrived. I want to switch gears and ask you about your Jewish life. You led the synagogue book club for a long time. What kinds of books did you like to read, and what did you enjoy singing in the synagogue choir? I started the book club about 25 years ago and led it for many years, but led is mostly that I brought the food. I brought the bagels and coffee. We had a whole series of books that were really about different countries, different ethnicities. We read books by Jewish authors. I remember we read a lot of books by Amos O's and books by American fiction authors that were very famous by Philip Roth and others. We loved reading books about the Orthodox Jewish community in New York. When I watched the Netflix series recently on Orthodox, I was thinking about the books that we had read and how those books had grown my understanding of the Orthodox community. I loved singing at the different holidays. I loved singing for the Hanukkah celebrations because I love Hanukkah songs. Probably my favorite thing to do was join an African-American church group of gospel singers who joined with us for the Martin Luther King Day celebration, the Shabbat service that we do in January every year, and that is a really wonderful event to join. You've called the federal action in Portland authoritarian overreach. Does a turn toward authoritarianism concern you as a Jewish official? Absolutely. I grew up in Reform Judaism. It was not so much religious-based in the sense of really studying the Old Testament or the Talmud, but here's something I have in my kitchen. This is a quote that I wrote on a little whiteboard, and it's from the Talmud. It says, The day is short. The task is difficult. It is not our duty to finish it, but we are forbidden not to try. I went to the Social Action Committee with my dad monthly at the synagogue, and I just understood that that was what being Jewish was about, making sure that we were protecting people's rights. It's really scary. I don't want to exaggerate anything. I don't like to be a catastrophist, but I've been very worried when it hits home like this, when things that I worry about with the President of the United States and some of the ways in which he conducts himself the people who have been harmed by policies that have really been mean-spirited and cruel, frankly, hit Portland in this way. It's shocking, and I'm not going to stand for it. And next, some news briefs from JTA. Seattle's only freestanding certified kosher restaurant closes amid pandemic pressure. 
If you keep kosher in Seattle, whose metro area is home to more than 60,000 Jews, you now have to head to the suburbs for a restaurant meal you can eat. The city's only freestanding certified kosher restaurant, Bamboo Garden, is serving its last meals today. The vegetarian restaurant became kosher nearly three decades ago after local Jews contributed expertise and money to allow it to achieve certification, according to a piece in the Seattle Times about the restaurant and what it has meant to Seattle Jews. Author uh, Joy Resmovitz, an assistant metro editor and observant Jew, wrote that Bamboo Garden was the only local restaurant where she could take her parents when they visited from New York. Others had similarly meaningful associations, she wrote. When news broke earlier this month that the restaurant would shutter at the end of July because of recent pandemic-related challenges and the owner's desire to retire, I received messages from lifelong Jewish Seattleites about their mourning this loss, how their only experience of dining out involved Bamboo Garden, how to my friend Nina Garvaki, uh, Garkavi, Eating there became part of a night-out ritual during any visit to the symphony or opera or trip to the Space Needle with tourists. Its regulars called it a place that bred diversity, feeding Buddhist monks, vegetarians, and observant Jews, but also familiarity, a place where they could count on running into each other, servers who greeted diners with Hebrew phrases, anticipated your order, and remembered your daughter's age even when you hadn't been there for a year or two. When you're a Jewish kid growing up in Seattle, you don't eat at a restaurant that's kosher and just say, I really don't like it. Said Jessica Rusick Hoffman, every kosher restaurant you eat at, you think, is the best restaurant. Seattle still has a host of vegetarian and vegan restaurants for Jewish diners who want to avoid eating non-kosher meat but may be comfortable without kosher certification. And there are a handful of kosher restaurants in the suburbs, including a vegetarian Indian restaurant, that became kosher following the Bamboo Garden playbook. But Seattleites must drive several hours to British Columbia to eat kosher meat in a restaurant, Resmovitz writes. And from Amsterdam, Hank von Gelderen, a Dutch-Jewish resistance fighter whose textile factory was used to produce yellow stars for the Nazis, died at age 98. The Distentor newspaper reported Tuesday about van Gelderen's death. Van Gelderen's factory in the eastern city of Enschede was confiscated by the German occupation forces soon after they invaded the Netherlands in 1940 and was used to produce 569,355 of the stars that the Nazis forced Jews to wear. Van Gelderen himself went into hiding in Amsterdam, assumed a false identity, and teamed up with a resistance cell that was well known for its high-quality forgeries of identity and travel documents for those wanted by the Nazis. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you as always for listening. <laughs>